Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this really special episode. Patty Whipfler has been working with families and children for an incredible 46 years. You may not know her name, but you might have heard of her organisation, which is called Hand in Hand Parenting. It's a not-profit international resource, and she is on a mission to help parents by teaching an approach which she calls Parenting by Connection. She's also got a book called Listen, Five Simple Tools to Meet Your Everyday Parenting Challenges. And Hand in Hand is an incredible organisation. I would really encourage you to have a look at their website. There are so many free resources, loads of free stuff on there. It's all not for profit. And Hand in Hand also has 135 instructors in 18 countries. And Patty's currently working with Harvard on a research project to bring Hand in Hand's tools to early childhood educators. I love having guests like Patty on who just has this incredible perspective. She has been doing this work for 46 years and I think it comes across in her tone and her energy and of course what she says is just her wisdom and her depth of experience on this. When someone like Patty speaks, we want to listen. So you are going to learn her moment of transformation in her life and how that led her to the work that she does today and her life's work and mission of helping parents and children connect. We have an incredible conversation about crying and actually if your child cries a lot that is an incredible thing and why we as a parent need space held for us to cry more as well. We talk a lot about listening which is one of the core tools that Patty teaches. What happens when we listen to our children's emotions instead of trying to shut them down? And what happens when we have someone listen to ours? Patty also shares the amazing hand-in-hand parenting tools that she's developed over these 46 years to help you create an incredible connection and relationship with your child. What I'm taking away from this episode is that the emotional release in our children is an important and powerful thing. Far from it being something that we want to shut down or worry about, actually, Patty tells us that if your child cries a lot, as mine do, and releases a lot of emotion with you, that is an amazing sign of a close connection of safety. You know what it reminds me of? You know when you're going through something and you can hold it down and you can hold it together and you're pushing down all that emotion and then someone that you love says, let me give you a hug. And I'm sure you've all said this, I've said it, and you go, don't hug me because then I'll cry. Because there's something about when we feel safe with someone, then we can release that emotion. And that's actually what we need to do. We need to release the emotion. There's incredible studies about the power of crying and how actually it helps us relieve stress. It's life's natural healer. 
is crying. So that's really what I'm taking away from this episode. I'm off to have a good cry. (laughs) I hope you love it. And here it is. Well, Patty, this is a bit of an honour for me. I love hand-in-hand parenting. I've been following it since I became a parent. I feel really honoured to be speaking to someone with such a depth of experience. You know, you've been doing this work 40 years and I imagine you have seen it all and I just cannot wait to get your wisdom and your insight and your perspective selfishly for myself and of course for everyone else listening. So thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for keying in on support for parents and taking care of ourselves. It's such an important point and almost everybody keys in on, oh my God, what do we do with our children? That is also very important, but you've latched onto a very key piece and it's a good emphasis. So it's great work you're doing. How did you come to this work? How did you come to want to work with parents? (laughs) I came to this work as a totally frazzled mother of two. (laughs) I'd figured I was always going to be a really great parent because I had taken care of my brothers and sisters. My mother was infirm and then disabled while I was a child and we had, I'm the oldest of six. So I got lots of experience babysitting and taking care of kids in my family and you know, working as a Girl Scout camp counselor and swimming teacher. And so I just thought I'm going to be really good at this. No problem. When I had my second child, my first child started wanting to hurt him. I went wild. I was out of control. I was more and more tense every day. And I kept waking up in the morning going, I am going to be kind to both boys. I'm going to be the kind person I always wanted to be. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I have the impulse. I mean, I really woke up the day I had the impulse to slam my older son up against the wall. I grabbed his arm and I almost did it. And I just thought, oh, man, I am in trouble here. But I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't even tell my husband that I was having trouble. It's like that's not the kind of thing you talk about. And I didn't know what to do with myself. And then I knew I needed to find some answer and One day, this woman that I'd barely met asked me, what's it like to be a mom? And just the way she looked at me and the way she was, I just looked back at her and all of a sudden I burst into tears. And I am not a person who cries. I probably hadn't cried in seven years. That's not what I do. But I cried so hard for about 15 minutes saying, I vowed I would never be harsh with my kids. My dad was harsh with us. I never wanted to do what he did. I feel like he's inhabiting me. I don't know how to get him out of me. I don't know what to do. Now, I have good parents, but they were under unimaginable stress, just stress I cannot even imagine. So they did the best they could, but my dad was a little wild at times, and now I was wild at times. And she just listened, and, you know, when I pulled myself together, she just said, thank you so much. I feel like I understand better what it's like to be a mom. You're doing such a good job. And that was all. She didn't give me advice. She didn't pat me and go, they're there. It's really okay. Or, gee, I think you need to see a counselor. She just listened and validated me. And I went back to my kids and I was a different person. It's like I could play again. I wasn't worried. I wasn't tense. 
And it was such a radical difference inside of me. I went back to her and I said, what did you do yesterday? (laughs) Whatever you did, I need to find out more about it because I'm a much better parent today than I was yesterday. And she said she'd been learning how to listen. I could take the classes that she was taking. And I started taking those classes and just dove into what essentially was listening partnerships, which is what we teach at Hand in Hand. So I paired up with a dad who had a disabled daughter who was six months old. His wife had just walked out on him and said she was leaving forever. He was an engineer. He knew nothing about babies whatsoever, in particular, not Down syndrome children, which is what his daughter had. And he didn't know where to start or what. He was gray, literally gray with fear. And this had all just happened like the week before that we started this listening class. And so he and I paired up and we did listening partnerships an hour each way. You know, I listened to him for an hour. He listened to me for an hour. And after the third time, my children were sleeping through the night and they'd never slept through the night. And I wasn't trying to get them to sleep through the night, but I became a more relaxed person. I became happier. I became less frightened. And so did they. It was just like, this is really something I didn't even try, but look what happened. And so I have pursued listening since that day. And that's like 46 years ago now. I've pursued listening night and day and, you know, with children, with grownups, with people of many ethnic backgrounds. I've just pursued it and pursued it and pursued it and pursued it because it was so interesting. So that's how I got started by coming to, you know, hitting the wall as a parent and then absolutely then tripping over something that really made a difference. And I saw my listening partner, he and I were listening partners for, I think, 12 years. And I saw every week an hour each way. And he actually came and worked at the school that we started where we were experimenting with, how do you use these ideas that it's useful to cry, it's useful to laugh, these things help you heal places where you're tense and you carry tension every day. You know, it's very useful to be listened to. It's like the laughing, the crying isn't anywhere near so good if there's not someone paying rapt attention to you and caring about who you are, but not giving you advice. And just huge changes happened in both of our lives over that time. We just went through all kinds of things with one another and we supported one another. We had many other listening partners, but, you know, so... I was in. I was in with both feet. <laughs> and that's how I got started. What is it about just being listened to? I mean, I'm a coach. We would call we would call it having space held. That's what we yes. say. Hold yes. space. What is it about having space held for us or being listened to that is so transformational? What was that magic that you experienced? Well, it's transformational when the attitude of the listener is one of complete respect, one of rapt interest, and one of confidence that your mind is working at optimal pace as long as I'm listening. That my listening, although I don't see you coming up with results, I don't see you coming up with answers, but my listening improves your ability to think And opens your mind to change, opens your mind to all that it knows, all that it remembers, and some of what it doesn't remember. 
And in particular, when the listener is confident through a person's big emotions, like being listened to in the middle of big emotions, sort of unglues that knot of perception and all the details of what happened, plus the emotion that went with it when hard things happened, overwhelming things happened to us. It creates a knot of what we saw, what we tasted, what we thought, what we smelled, what we felt, what physically, where we were. That knot makes a big wad in our minds that cannot be processed because of the emotion that glues it together. And when a listener is there and we have permission to unload that emotion in whatever way, laughter, tears, trembling, perspiring that comes along with being scared, all of that, as the emotion rolls out and someone is there for you, someone is just there for you, cares about you, wants to know every detail, but doesn't push you for details, lets you cry without a word for half an hour if that's how you want to do it. That means that you're experiencing the bad feelings from the past, but now there's someone there who cares. So it's the addition of caring that means that when the emotion leaves, you feel better, you feel more confident, you can actually process what happened to you. A good example, I was just thinking about this It's the birthday of this person yesterday, and I was just thinking about her. She is a woman of color, lives in a community of color near here, and she had been doing trainings around training women to deal with domestic violence and sexual abuse. So she trains people in this area, and so she taught her son the proper names for all of his body parts. But that is highly uncommon in their community. Those The names for body parts all have nicknames or they're just not named at all. And her son was explaining something to someone and used all the proper names for his body parts. And he was sent to the school principal. The teachers got alarmed because they thought that he must be exposed to improper sexual material or some person who was abusing him. And they called Child Protective Services because he'd used the proper names for his body parts. (laughs) And Child Protective Services called her and said, we need to come and make a visit. Teachers are concerned about what might be going on in your home with your child. So I'm coming over tomorrow morning. And she was livid. She was so lit up with anger. It's like, How could they possibly think that I'm a bad mother? How could they possibly make this assumption? And she called a listening partner and she ranted and raved outside the house so the children wouldn't hear it, ranted and raved with her listening partner and cried and just went through all kinds of heavy emotion. And she herself had been abused as a child, so it brought up all kinds of things about that. But was mostly just deeply insulted as a parent. And by the end of that 45 minutes, she was ready to just really go in and just loudly protest to the principal, to the teacher, just really get angry with people at school, as well as with the Child Protective Services person who was coming tomorrow. And after 45 minutes, she her brain changed. 
she got all of this off her chest and she just went, oh, they're trying to protect my child. They want to make sure he's not being abused. This is exactly what I want from the people at my child's school. They just didn't understand why he was using these words. They didn't understand that I teach this stuff. And so, of course, I've used these words. And by the time the Child Protective Services person came, she was calm. She was able to handle it. She didn't go around making life worse for herself and her child with the school officials. It just it took 45 minutes, which is actually a fairly long listening time these days. It gave her a whole new perspective. And her listening partner did not give her that perspective. She came to it herself. Her mind got rid of how of early trauma that it triggered to have this happen. She could think again. So it's a very powerful tool. It's so powerful. And I think, is it the work of Nancy Klein? I'm trying to remember if that's the right, but there's a study which shows that, sure you'll know this, the quality of the listener's presence directly impacts the quality of the other person's thinking, which is exactly what you're describing. Yeah. It's just incredible. I remember learning that and just thinking, this is mind-blowing in terms of, you know, my work as a coach and with my friends, with my family. If I can just be fully present and really hear the other person without, as you're saying, trying to fix or advise or get my agenda in, they'll just work it out. Yeah, it works out slowly or it works out, you know, in 45 minutes. It can be a very long process. If you're working on hurts that go deep and that were implanted in you early, then it's more like an emotional project is what we call that, where you work on it and you work on it and you work on it and you're still in a fog and you still don't know what decision to make or which way to turn. But if you keep working on it, if you keep going back to the confusion that's there, it will clear. And many other places where that confusion was influencing you but you couldn't tell. So not only does this one issue become clear, but so many other issues become much clearer. It's like you generally make gains as a human being. In your hand-in-hand parenting, this is the tool that you call stay listening. I think it's important to talk about how you weave these, obviously, into the hand-in-hand philosophy. So tell us about stay listening and what that means in a parent's toolkit. Well, stay listening, we consider to be a tool that you use with your children, although you can think of yourself as using it with a listening partner every time you listen. But with children in particular, it means staying when what you've been taught in the culture is to tell them to go in their bedroom and come out when they are not crying anymore because you don't want them to cry and besides it's insulting or they're just trying to get what they want or... They're just trying to bribe you into giving them what they've asked for and that they're crying about. So there's all of these judgments on crying, but crying is an inborn process of unloading the hurt that goes in when you felt threatened or disconnected from other people. You felt like you've been too alone. You felt like you haven't had enough support. And children need a tremendous amount of support. So these kinds of hurts land on them every day. You know, if you don't come in when they've woken up and are calling for you, if you don't come in right away, they could just begin crying right there for the lack of connection. 
children need connection like they need air to breathe and like they need water to drink and sleep every night. It's like the brain doesn't work without there being a foundation of connection. And that connection has to be current and present. When a child is crying, what we invite parents to try doing is to stay with them and listen when you otherwise feel like, oh my God, what a brat, you know, (laughs) there she is crying for, you know, a third cookie again. How long do we have to go through this? I've already told her no, but she's crying anyway. So that's how we feel inside when children cry, but it's really trying to give parents a different perspective that your child is now trying to heal from the disappointment of your having said no or having said it's time to do your homework and not allowing them to distract themselves and go off. So you stay, but you stay with respect and with warmth. So you infuse your listening with respect and warmth and time and you allow the child to keep crying until they don't feel like crying anymore, if you can. If you can't, you listen for as long as you can, and then you say, I'm sorry, I can't listen anymore, which doesn't help the situation. Usually that makes them cry harder, but we'll just leave that unresolved right there. But if you can listen all the way through, children are able to think when they're finished crying, and they're able to behave quite differently. I'm thinking about a two-year-old who was at a play event that I did. All the adults at the play event were adults she already knew, and the children at the play event were all children she already knew, and her mom was there, but she was sitting in her mom's lap and would not even turn around to look at the children who were on the play equipment in the park that we went to. She wouldn't even look, and I went over and said, hi. And she looked at me and she burst into tears. And she's two years old in her mommy's lap and her mom's holding her. And she wanted me to go away. And I just said to her mom, can I stay? And the mom had been learning these things. So she wasn't unfamiliar with staying listening. And she said yes. And so the longer I listened along with her mom and gave her eye contact, she wasn't looking at me, but the eye contact was there. She knew. She just started crying harder and harder and sweating and struggling and writhing. And then she began coughing and coughing and coughing, just coughing, big paroxysms of coughing and crying in between and then going back to coughing and then crying. And after about a half an hour, she finally got quiet and looked around and we played a little bit and she could smile and then she could kind of get up and look around. And I turned her mom and her around so they could see what the other children were doing. And she had not spent a moment in the whole hour that she'd been there outside of her mom's lap. And she got up and she just hopped across the park, just, you know, walk, 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 hop, walk, 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 hop, walk, 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 hop. Like, oh, I'm 10 pounds lighter was kind of what it looked like. And then she went over and got onto a swing and played and, went with the other children and she didn't even look back. She just was totally freed of something, whatever it was, you know, night and day difference in her behavior. And I just was curious. So I asked her mom, you know, has she ever had some kind of a really bad kind of respiratory illness or what was her birth like? And her mom said, oh, 
she was born with a cord wrapped around her neck twice. And I just thought all of that coughing, you never know, we don't, we don't have mind meld, but all of that coughing that came up was a sign that she was working on just the trauma of her birth and being strangled while she was trying to go through the birth canal. We don't know, but it was the mom's guess too, that there was some connection there. So sometimes children go back and work at the very hardest and earliest things when you listen really well and they have the full support they need. The fact that her mom was there and holding her was just exactly right. And the fact that there was someone else adding attention made it an even deeper healing process. Children can tell when you're afraid. It's like it happens all the time that when someone has a baby and, you know, it's someone I know and I come up and I look at the baby and, I, you know, and they say, oh, do you want to hold her? I say, sure. You know, the baby comes into my lap and within five minutes, you know, the baby and I are looking at each other and the baby begins crying. It's like they can tell that I'm really relaxed and somehow they can sense the space that I can hold. And they go for it, you know, because most people don't let babies cry. So we just go ahead and start using this healing process right away. So interesting. It's such a powerful reframe, isn't it? Because I think so many parents think, you know, I have this child that cries all the time or they don't cry when they're with other people and they just cry with me. And I think the kind of common lexicon is, you know, that then parents tend to think there's something wrong with me. Whereas what you're describing so beautifully is there's something right with you that your child feels really safe to explore those feelings. This is how I discovered and started to really love hand in hand because I have quite a challenging six-year-old, what I find challenging. And she cries a lot. She cries a lot. Tantrum still. And she's six, nearly six. And it just really helped me. It really helped me to be like, no, Zoe, like the reason that she feels safe, she feels safe enough to let all these feelings out. There's nothing wrong with her. There's nothing wrong with you. And it's just so reassuring. The other thing I can tell you is that children who do have permission to cry as much as your child does, for instance, in their early childhood, they work through issues that would otherwise have tightened their minds and tightened their hearts. And they learn things that other people can take 50 years to try to learn. In general, we found that the children who have been listened to become leaders, although they are still doing a lot of crying compared to normal children who have to stuff their feelings. They still have more feelings all the way through, but They become the child in their class that has friends in all these different groups. They become kind of the emotional center of the class. They speak out and the things they say are wise and smart. Their friendships cross ethnic lines and social class lines easily. They have just a really good feel for other people. Because of the attention that you've poured in, they know how to pay attention to other people. They're able to assume that people are trying their hardest more of the time than other children are because that assumption has been made of them. It's so amazing. Something I still struggle with, I'd love to talk to you about, 
is while well, I've got you know someone with 40 years That's experience <laughs> well there's, there's lots that I still struggle with but with what we're talking about because I guess you know in our house we never shut down feelings and you know everything that you're describing you know I try and stay and because of that there's a lot of emotion in our house Jesse's nearly six and Rose is nearly two and there's a lot of shouting there's a lot of crying Jessie sometimes does this behavior where she just screams out of nowhere. And I think it's a release. It looks to me like she's just releasing something, like almost like somatic. She just screams out of nowhere. And when it's just me in the house with the girls, it's fine. When I find it really challenging is when we have guests or even family. I find it really hard, even with what I do and all these conversations and people like you. And I kind of have you all with me. But I find it really hard to not feel judged, to not judge myself. Something you've even said, like, wow, your children cry a lot and they shout a lot. And I say, well, that's because I kind of don't shut their emotions down. So they're just all out. I was like, you're seeing all of it. But I do find it really hard when people are around us to kind of try and then be like, well, just stop crying a little bit. I found myself doing that the other day. And I was wondering if you had any advice. Or how you've seen that handled? Because I think it's one thing doing it in the privacy of your home. It's another thing publicly. Yeah. Well, there's several things to say about that. I think the first one is just using listening time with someone, however you manage to do that or get that, to work on any feelings besides being pleased and proud of children, you know? And to talk back to people who might judge you or to talk back to the messages of you judging yourself. You know, it's like we've all had thought daggers, you know, sent our way when our children are being loud. And there's things you'd like to say and there's ways you'd like to stand up for yourself. And of course, you can't do that without damaging a relationship. So just having that chance to do that full force without having to be careful because you're doing it with a listening partner, not with the people that tempt you to do this. That would be really helpful. That will sort of keep the reactions inside of you down to a low simmer rather than boiling over. The second thing, the use of special time. So special time is a connection tool. In a way, it's the foundation of the other tools working well with children. Just giving a child five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of your warm, delighted attention to do whatever they want to do and to have you do whatever they want you to do. So it is a tool that helps children, that helps build and strengthen the connection, the parent-child connection. And it sounds like when people come over and there's competition for your attention, this brings up issues for both children. Every two-year-old in the world has issues when someone comes over if they love their mommy passionately. And all of a sudden there's too many people and, oh my gosh, maybe my mommy isn't available. Those are deep fears in a two-year-old. And in your six-year-old, there is something, there's an emotional project going on where she loses her sense of connection very fast. That's what's happening when all of a sudden there's a scream apropos of nothing. She somehow lost that sense of connection and she's frightened and there's some deeper fear in there that comes from earlier most likely 
if you do special time, find a way to arrange it so that, you know, one child gets five minutes and the other child gets five minutes. Or if you have a partner, you each take a child and you give them 10 minutes of special time before people arrive. It's possible that that might set them up sort of filling their cup of attention before people get there means that they're not going to feel so empty so fast. And you can never bet on that 100%. But the more you do special time on a regular basis in your life, and then double up on a little more special time when there's a situation that often sets them off, it's like all of those ordinary special times when there was no particular reason to do it, except that this is part of what we do, help them get filled and stay filled. And then right before people come over is kind of to top them off. And it might make things different. You can also tell people, look, my older child really is going through something and she needs my dedicated attention for five minutes after we've visited for about a half an hour. And I, I'm going to leave and do that and come back because I'm trying just to see if it helps her. So putting a little dab of attention where she's totally in charge of the relationship and she gets to decide what you do can help a child feel empowered and connected. And that might make a difference. That's really helpful. I think that just feels really true about what's going on. It feels really true that there's something, I don't know what it is. As you were talking, I was like, what is this? There's obviously something. How how was her group? Amazing. Amazing in a good way. Yeah. Oh, good. Great. So it's not that. But there's obviously something because it is, it's whenever she feels like my attention might be away from her, she acts out kind of big time. Yeah. Sometimes the birth of a sibling can bring that all of a sudden on. Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? It's just so interesting. I just want to kind of... I also love, you know, what you say, that it's kind of not for us to analyze or figure out, you know, that what will be revealed is, you know, if we do this day listening, whatever needs to come out will come out. You also could try play listening around your attention going away and coming back. Like there's many games you can play around, oh my gosh, mommy's gone. Oh my gosh, mommy's back. Peekaboo is the simplest one, but I've often played games where... If in special time, when a child has chosen to do pillow fight, you know, and they've got me on the floor and they've put a pillow on my face and I go, hmm, wonder if she's there. And then I look out and I go, you know, and I pretend that I'm scared. And that really tends to help children laugh. It's like getting laughter going, playing hide and seek where you're trying to find her, but you are pretending you can't see her. So say she's hiding behind the curtains, you know, and you are padding all over the curtains. I just don't know where she is, you know, or you see her behind the door and you walk right by the door. You know, this is so hard to find her. And then you being delighted when you actually do find her. Oh, I was so worried you were gone. Or you can play games like, I'm going to glue you to me. I just can't stand you being so far away. And then you you pretend, slather on pretend glue, and you just put her right on your chest. And then, oh my gosh, your little finger's sticking out. Let me get some glue on that finger. And then you glue her hand to your side. And 
And then you kind of walk around, you know, as best you can with her on your feet. And in general, children will laugh and laugh and laugh when you are desperate to be with them or desperate to be in touch with them. Or if you have a partner, you can put her on your back and run through the house going, she's on my back, not on your back. I've got her. And then your partner comes running after. And then there's chase to get her. And then your partner puts her on their back. And then, no, no, you can't have her. I want my beautiful girl back. You know, and just being openly wanted like that can bring peals and peals and peals of laughter. And it can settle a child's fears laugh by laugh. It's really good stuff. It's mm, beautiful. All that play listening, basically you're taking cues from the child all the time, but you're looking for what lets them laugh. And then you're doing exactly that thing over and over and over again so that the laughter keeps rolling because laughter releases fear beautifully. And any child who's screaming when they get disconnected has fear stuck in there. Screaming is really a very sure sign that they're working on fear and laughter really opens up that work on fear very nicely. I wanted to ask about limits. Uh-huh. I think there's sometimes this misconception, isn't there, that kind of connected parenting and authoritative parenting is kind of just all doing whatever the child wants, but it's not. It's absolutely love and limits. You know, I always get asked this and I always want to hear this because I think it's just so still kind of not the way that society has taught us. You know, we've been taught about punishing and time out and taking things away and giving things. How do you do and teach connected limit setting? We teach it with the idea that you listen. You listen to see whether your child is off track. You listen to yourself as well while you're trying to figure out, okay, who's off track now? Is my hair standing on end with tension? And my child is just jumping on the bed because children jump on beds and love it. Or are they way off track? because they've gotten disconnected. And when you figure out that you need to set a limit, either because you can't stand what's going on or it's unsafe or they are off track, any of those are good reasons to set a limit. Then you set the limit and then you listen to the child's feelings after you've set the limit. So example, one mother I know, her son really loved his piano lessons and he was really pretty good at it. And he was very dedicated to practicing. And then all of a sudden he stopped practicing and she didn't do anything about it for about six months. But finally the teacher said, you know, if he doesn't practice, I think the lessons are not worth you paying for because he's not getting anything out of it. And she began being hard on him in the car on the way home from this lesson. Why aren't you practicing? It's not worth it. Then she stopped herself and she went, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to get mad at you about this. It's something I need to think about. And she got home and she thought about it for a day. And then the next day she said, no, I would like to know what is in your way of practicing. I want to help you. And I think you love to practice. I think you love to play the piano. I want you to practice, but I'll help you any way you can tell me how to help. Then he got really upset. He said, why are you doing this? You know, you're being a mean mom. I don't want to practice. I'm fed up. I'm not going to practice. 
and you shouldn't be talking to me like this. And she just stayed and said, well, you can tell me any way you think I could help. I will help you, but I am going to ask you to practice. After a couple minutes, he began to cry and he had a really good cry, just blaming her. It was all her fault. What was the matter with her? You know, and she just stay listened and kept saying, I will help you any way that you can tell me that you want help. I'm right here. I think you really love to play the piano. And just kept kind of on that very simple theme. And after about 15 minutes, she actually had something else she had to do. So she just said he wasn't finished, but she couldn't stay. So she said, well, I need to go and make the dinner so it's on time. And we will figure this out. I know we'll figure this out. And he wasn't in a happy mood when she left. But within about 15 minutes, she heard him practicing. And they never had any trouble with piano practice after that. But she also changed the way she was talking about it. She learned that she needed to change. Not it's time for you to practice, but to tell him, I love to hear you play the piano. I hope I get to hear that today. And just to put out what was really going on, which is her joy in him gaining this skill and her joy in listening to him figure it all out. And to go with that rather than, you know, we have to check this off our list today, you know, in a very kind of parental, let's get this done kind of joyless way. That's one example of setting limits, both the parent changing, like she changed what she did twice. You know, she started being hard on him in the car and blaming him. And then she changed how she began to see her role in being openly pleased with him and his piano playing rather than taskmaster. And what about if it's a behavior? Um, So like, I don't know, hitting or name calling to a parent or some behavior that like, I really want that to stop or maybe throwing food like my toddler's doing at the moment. Although actually, if I'm honest, I kind of let her do that a bit. But what if there is a behavior that you're trying to stop? I think that's when lots of people kind of, I don't know, I've seen it in myself, actually, where I can kind of do this for so long. And then I'm like, I feel like I kind of want to reach for something bigger. And I never do time out. I never get there. But I kind of can really see how I kind of want something bigger to be like, no. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm describing it very well. I think so. Part of what we're up against as parents, and I don't know if this is part of it for you, is that we have been taught in school that verbal communication is the queen of communication and to use our words all the time. Actually, the queen of communication is body language. For fear, I think, for many of us of intervening harshly, we don't intervene physically at all. But if you want to stop a behavior, Saying stop just gets you an angry look and the child will just go right ahead. You know, please don't take the dirt out of the plant and put it on the carpet. And they look at you and they put their hand in the dirt and they put the dirt on the carpet again because they are signaling to you that they don't feel connected and they are expecting you to read that signal somehow. So when a child does a behavior repetitively and you ask them not to one time, and they go ahead and do it again, then you can be finished with words. They are not working. 
and trying to explain, trying to give the five reasons, trying to get down on your hands and knees and say, now I told you that, da, 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 da. all of that is just going right over the top of your child's head. They've already shown you that words are not going to work. And that's a sign that the limbic system is full of a feeling or full of an impulse that they cannot resist. And so what you do is you just reach in and you say, nope, not going to let you do that. And you make it stop. You make it stop. You know, they're ready to hit and you hold their arm. They've got a block in their hand and they're going to throw it. You hold the arm with the block and you put your hand on the block. You don't grab the block away from them because you don't want to model grabbing. But you put your hand in front of the block so it cannot be thrown. And all you have to do is say, no, but you want to make eye contact. You know, you want to reach for connection because connection is the only thing that's going to get through to a brain that is full of feelings and impulses that they cannot control. And once they feel your attention, once they feel the offer of connection, up are going to come the feelings. And that's when you're going to get the tantrum or the yelling or the stomping up and down or the cursing you from now till Sunday. All of that is a way of offloading, you know, fear, anger, grief, upset. And you just hold the limit and you don't have to tell them why. Like they already heard why you already said that, you know, two minutes ago, they can't process it until they get all these feelings out of the way. And sometimes when you stop a child, what they do is they laugh, they laugh really hard. And then they try to fight, you know, the limit that you've set, the physical limit you've set. And that's another good outcome. You know, they're not disrespecting you. They're not, not taking you seriously. You know, they are offloading the lighter side of fear. And so you say, you can't go outside now, it's time for dinner. And they make a beeline for the door. You grab them by the t-shirt, you know, pull them back into your lap and go, hey, you, that's not the direction for dinner. The direction for dinner is this way, you know, and you turn them around and set them in the direction to the dining room. And they, of course, turn around and try to run out the door again. You grab them again. Oh don't know your directions now here let me help you now it's this way din din is this way you know and they laugh and laugh and laugh and then start running out so you get a little game going where you set the limit over and over and over again because they have this impulse at dinner time every night and so you're letting them show you the impulse but you're stopping them from getting away You are being very playful. You're being very connective. You're not afraid of the situation. And you just get laughter going and slowly but surely the connection seeps in. And after about five minutes, they may be able to come to dinner or you can't do the game anymore. You got to get there and get the food on the table. So you pick them up and you bring them and you sit them down and then they might burst into tears, which is what they needed to do in the first place. But What's happening is that they're clearing the obstacles for them to thinking, to being actually a thoughtful person at the dinner table. I think that's one of the things that I've probably learned most from you hand in hand. I'm just so grateful for is the idea, and you've said it in almost every story, actually, that when the tantrum or the crying comes, it's that release that's needed before you can kind of move on. 
And I just wish that more people knew that. I mean, I guess that's why I do the podcast, one of the reasons. Because I didn't used to know that. And I think generally, you know, as a society, we just don't understand that, do we? We don't understand generally how those feelings get stored in the body and what happens to that over decades. One parent described it as the storm before the calm. (laughs) Instead of the calm before the storm. And another way I think about it is we accept the fact that children need to poop every day and to pee a lot because that processes the undigestible parts of the nice, healthy, nurturing food that we've given them. And their emotional system needs to get rid of the debris from the unhappy or uncomfortable or overwhelming moments that they run into every day. And it's the crying and the laughter and the trembling and the struggling, struggling mightily sometimes when they're scared that actually is an emotional poop. And it's really good to get that gunk out. It helps children think. It helps them function. It helps them learn. helps them cooperate. And they are, in general, just wonderful to be with when they've had that opportunity. It just really smooths things out. And it's a lot of work, especially at first, when you first start listening, then huge amounts of stuff come up over a period of time while they clear out their attic of stuff that they've been holding on to for a while. But the rewards are great. I've been at this for four and a half decades now, a little more than that. So I know what children turn out like when they are all grown up. Many of the children that that I worked with are now in their 50s and have children of their own. And a good number of them have got PhDs. One is in charge of a big recreation department in a big metropolitan city in the United States, working mostly with young people who have come from disadvantaged areas. And he does a beautiful job there. A couple of them are rock stars. There is a British newscaster who shows up on American TV sometimes because he's a correspondent who was raised this way. There's one who was the star of a Broadway musical that was called The Jersey Boys, and he performed on Broadway in the leading role, singing and dancing, for two and a half years. I mean, just really, I mean, not everybody's like a surprising number of young people, and many of them are very involved in social justice issues. Like they get that the world needs to change, and they get that they have a role to play there, and they want to play it, and they do. So these are young people who can think. These are young people who have the confidence to go after big goals and even get there. One of them wanted to be a soccer player, a professional soccer player. He's an African-American child, very, very poor mom. was on welfare when she first started with Hand in Hand. And he was playing professional soccer in Germany at the age of 20. You know, just like, Wow. Must be amazing that that perspective. Yeah. And in the kind of 45 years, you know, and having that perspective, what do you wish that more parents knew? The concept of emotional work, it's not part of how we think, but parenting is the epitome of emotional work. It's like you start out being joyful that you're pregnant and you're you and your partner are going to have a baby. 
And all you can think of is just love and joy. And you have no idea that you need to strap on your seatbelt because you are going to be on the biggest roller coaster ride of your life. Emotions that go with parenting are going to rock you and roll you and overwhelm you for 20 years, if not more. Parenting is emotional work and we need emotional support for the work of parenting. We do so much better if there's someone to listen to us, if we have someone who gets to know us, offers us respect, we can cry with them, we can laugh with them, we can rage with them, and they can listen to us as we go through these amazing sagas that are lives. And the sagas are about the small things, like how many times a day our child starts crying intensely. And they're about big things, you know, you know, illnesses and hardships in the family and losing a job. And that's just this idea of emotional work and that we need to build into every kind of job, into nursing, into being a doctor, into being a teacher, into being a therapist. We need to build the expectation that people deserve and need to be paid for the time they spend doing emotional work in order to be really excellent at what they do and in order to feel connected as they do it because the more connection people feel the more they can offer that to the young people in our society and and the healthier our young people will be and healthier we all will be we definitely need that don't we yeah you know because I'm sure that people listening and begin thinking how do I get a listening partner is that something that people can get from your organization or can you kind of ask a friend, like, shall we be listening partners? How does someone actually start to get the magic? Because I think that's, you know, just so important what you just shared. You know, it's emotional work, it's hard work. And we as the parent need that space held for us. Where does yeah. someone get that? Well, a listening partnership is done many ways. At Hand in Hand, we have a parents club. So for a small fee, Every month for as many months as you want, you're in a group of parents who are very interested in getting listening partnerships, trying listening partnerships, and trying our listening tools with their children. And we mentor them both in the listening partnerships, you know, answering questions about, well, what if my listening partner does this? And what if, you know, here's what's happening, what should I do? And also in using the listening tools, the special time, play listening setting limits and stay listening with their children. And because people can easily find one another and there's a WhatsApp group, so you can get just an emergency five minutes of listening time. And then you give five minutes of listening time to someone else another time, or maybe you exchange right there. It's sort of at your fingertips to try. We sort of get people trying things, but we have a booklet. It's available online and you can get the booklet, read the booklet share the booklet with someone that you would like to do this listening with. But in general, it's not a great idea to share it with your parenting partner, to try to learn listening partnerships with the person you're parenting or someone who's deeply involved in your everyday life, just because that relationship already has a shape and it has its traditions and it's harder to listen to someone that you're with night and day and with whom you share sensitive issues. It's like if it's a sensitive issue for you, it's probably a sensitive issue for your partner. So you start working on it and your partner is going to be tempted to 
judge your feelings or tell you what to do. There's all kinds of listening mistakes that they're going to be tempted to make. So starting out with someone that you know less well or that you're not involved with day by day can be helpful. But a good friend who is already a good listener, who you can make agreements with, okay, we're not going to chit chat now. You're going to listen to me and please don't ever refer to what I say during this half hour again. You know, someone who can hold confidentiality like that, if you've got someone like that, and that would be a good choice of a person to try with. The safety might be deep and very, very useful very quickly. It's not a usual thing that people are used to being asked, you know, hey, would you like to try a listening partnership? It's like, oh, what? Culturally, it's not a usual thing. And therefore, people get scared to ask, feeling like, well, if it doesn't work out and I don't like it, I feel like I'm married to them now, you know, and I'm afraid to make a commitment like that. And it's not really a commitment like that, but people's fears come up about how do I get out of this if it's not working? You know, what do I say? What do I do? There are many places where we are already scared, scared to say what is, scared the person's feelings are going to be hurt, scared our feelings are going to be hurt if they don't like us. We carry so many fears. <laughs> so it's really kind of hopping around those fears well enough that you get a good experiment going and it sort of works either the first time or the second time or the third time. So getting into a hand-in-hand -hand class where everybody is listened to every time we do a little listening group and the listening turns are really short. So it's not challenging. Short is useful in some ways and kind of a pity in other ways, because if you just started crying and then all of a sudden it's someone else's turn, you're left not having finished what you started. But classes are good that way and having you see what it's like to really listen and hear what other parents are going through. It sort of normalizes in a very useful way what you were going through. And they're not going through exactly what you're going through, but whatever they're going through, they have big feelings about. And that helps you see that it's parenting that causes all of this. It's not our personal failures. It's the lack of support in parenting that gets us all balled up in a bad way between ourselves and our children or ourselves and our partners. It's the lack of support for this very emotional work that is the trouble. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's so eloquently put, you know, it's the lack of support for this most important job in the world and hardest job in the world for the amount of emotional support that we have to give. Yeah. You know, if we're not getting ourselves, well, you end up, you know, where I've been and where you described in the start of the story, you know, kind of just at that tipping point. Yeah. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? This gift I would give to all the mothers in the world and all the fathers too is just a listening partnership, you know, a chance to try a listening partnership, a chance to be listened to with warmth and utmost respect and utmost confidence that they have a good mind. And they are a good person and they've always done the best that they could at every moment. Just a listener with that attitude and that understanding gives us the chance to make important changes that we know we want to make. Those changes are hard without a really good listener. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. 
Oh, it's just a joy to be with you, Zoe. And again, I just want to appreciate the really groundbreaking work that you are doing for mothers. It's very important work, and I thank you for it. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.